the human animal isn't doing well in the modern world. We have become domesticated and have lost our wildness. Rates of unhappiness are skyrocketing. We are anxious, fragmented, and drowning in an overwhelming sense of meaninglessness. It should be clear to all of us that for all the promises of modernity, we don't seem to be better off when it comes to our overall health. The Human Animal Show explores a return to a state of wild health, our original, authentic human animal. And now for your hosts, Frank Forensich and Dr. Rodney King. Guy. Hey, Scott. Hey. How's it going, gang? <laughs> hey. How are you? Good. Where Where are you? It looks like you're in a cave or something. <laughs> Camper van. Uh, yeah, I'm in my van, so that's, okay. <laughs> that's the cave. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, Scott, Scott uh, good to meet you virtually, but uh, hopefully yeah. one day you we can well. meet in person. Yeah, cool, man. So appreciate you uh, Agreeing to chat to us, I know that you know Frank reached out to you and he knows you, so I'm, I'm sure you'll have some stuff to to talk about. But if you're happy to jump right into this, then we can get going. Okay, I'm I'm down. All right. So yeah, it's kind of like my general question, you know, when I'm talking to everybody because I'm interested, right? I want to see what everybody's perspective is. What do you think, just broadly? What do you think is the problem with modern society as as we see it right now? I know it's a big question, but like, let's kind of start there and then we can kind of drill it down and get more specific. Okay. I love it. I love big questions. And um, (laughs) my answers can vary day to day, actually. Sure. Uh, Today I was, I was jamming on the idea of, of, are we doomed? Right. As a society um, this morning. And I planned on asking both of you guys that. So maybe we can get into this after and your thoughts. Um, love to hear it. And this comes back to the problem, I guess, is if we do look at potentially what is one of the biggest problems we've ever had in modern society would be the last two years. Right. So I have to be mindful if I even say the word or how I even say the words of what happened the last two years, because your platform could be changed by anything I say. Right. Um, which just led me to wonder if we're doomed because after 9-11, for example, what, what did New Yorkers do? You remember that? You remember that kind of united we stand, we're in this together and there's all the, you know, all of this um, tribals, you know, oh, we're going to survive and we're going to, you know, mm. we're going to make shirts and merchandise and we're in this, we're, you know, New York strong. Um, so I guess, this morning, what I was really jamming on was the idea of that we just came through this massive crisis, you know, two year period, I guess we're still in it, right. Um, And I worry that our very issue is our disconnect with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, We we're actually, I don't feel we're better off than when we started two years ago. Um, So for whatever 
side of the coin or if you're the red pill, the blue pill or whatever, you know, um, side of the aisle or whatever, it's unfortunately divided us um, tremendously. Um, so I guess disconnect is one of our biggest issues as as living in the modern world. So here we are connected. It's so wonderful to talk to you all the way this long distance. And even Frank and I, we live in a huge state. So it's, you know, he's on the other side of the Cascades. It's two different, you know, I'm in the rainforest and he's in the high Alpine, you know, forest. And we're blessed with this ability to connect through this platform. Um, so there's obviously positives of it, but I just see broadly a disconnect, um, in humanity. That's, that's, to me, one of the greatest issues. And that's, again, very broad to disconnect. That's just the right, a broad thing. So I, I feel like this reconnection um, element is so important. And, and looking at community and tribe and how the hell do we repair everything that has gone, you know, into chaos, into this human predicament, as Frank often um, refers it refers to it so um broadly just a disconnect is all i all i kind of am coming up with right now is yeah, just that i think you i think i think you're onto something so yeah my question for you frank are we doomed <laughs> well I'll, I'll circle around to that because i do have sure. an opinion on that. but um listening to sky this reminds me of the author uh, sebastian younger and uh, i've read a lot of his stuff and he writes a, a bit of a story one of his chapters about being a young man and he grew up in a suburban environment and he looked at the people around him living pretty comfortable lives uh, affluent or semi-affluent lives where there wasn't really any big challenge and he he didn't feel a sense of shared predicament. So he didn't feel a tribal unity in his community. And he actually wished for some sort of catastrophe, some sort of hurricane or earthquake or tornado that would drive the community together. And that was his uh, his little thought experiment. Mm-hmm. And people get in trouble for that, for thinking that way. But on the other hand, it made perfect sense. It's like, when people have a shared predicament, they tend to rally together. And that's something that we've lost. We don't have that sense of shared predicament now. Yeah, and I guess I guess for our hunter-gatherer ancestors, the shared predicament would have been survival in of itself, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Well, for- that's, the, that's the beauty of having predators circling around your camp because everybody knows that everybody agrees about what is dangerous. And in the modern world, we don't agree about that. I mean, people have wildly divergent views about what is dangerous. And you never take a class in school about dangerous things. You never have. So it's no surprise that we don't agree on this. And, um, I'm, I'm not sure. We, we, I mean, obviously, our ecological crisis is a shared predicament, but we don't agree on that either. So, so I was thinking about that today, and I'd like to get Sky's take on this. Is uh, I was thinking about the ecological predicament, right? I feel like what's really happened here is that it, it, it's a symptom of a much bigger problem in the sense that when you look around at most people, if you have a conversation with people today, 
they feel as sky said like disconnected disoriented loss of meaning mental health issues are on the rise it's almost as if our collective trauma as humanity is the thing that is being exhibited within the earth within the planet right so when we talk about this this disaster that's upon us you know climate change and so forth it's an expression of our collective trauma and in a sense it's it's almost like reflecting back on us that actually hey hold on a second there's a huge freaking problem here and it's it's almost as if the planet's trying to get our attention right and so you know if we go further down to that is that i mean the only conclusion i can come up with is that well you know where did, where does this trauma stem from i mean if we think again and this is the questions i ask myself i mean if i go back in time at some point my ancestors all of our ancestors for that matter were hunter gatherers were they so unhappy were they like did they absolutely you know live in despair and absolutely hated their lives because that's how it seems these days when you talk to people i don't think so right i think they had a very different view to the way that they saw themselves and their place in the world and so then again did this really just all start from you know, when what some people say, right, when agriculture took hold, right? So kind of like once we started settling down, we stopped being hunter-gatherers, we started staying in one place, we started hoarding, and then we had to find, you know, ways to protect that. And then, you know, cities and towns and everything came about. Is that kind of where this whole thing started? And is this just the culmination of 200 years of collective trauma that's now burying itself out? Could be, yeah. There's interesting when you look at, ancient cultures and um, societies and the, 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 the rise and the fall. Um, every movie thematically always has, whether it's, you know, a story about Elton John or Freddie Mercury, or it doesn't matter the Elvis or whoever, just like c- civilizations, there's always this, this building process. There's this excitement, like in a new relationship, mm-hmm. like oh, the dating phase and you're going through this phase and you're, you're building the infrastructure, you're, you're the gold rush and you're going to build some towns so you can get the, get the resources and you're, and you have this, you know, trajectory, right. Which is, I'm again, I'm going like this, right. That's the trajectory. The trajectory isn't ever seen as like, let's come into a place and go like this, right. I'm making my hands level here. Um, if you're listening, it's, it's always this meteoric, how can we climb and climb and climb and build and build and, we could be looking at that element where this maybe is the sixth extinction or, or whatever we're at this phase, you know, looking at the Romans and looking at the Incans and looking at we're on that same path. We're, we're still not able to deal with modern living and the modern world in our ancient brains. But again, it's like digital, this digital, that digital. I mean, it's, I, I ask sometimes if they take cash in a store now. Like, do you guys take cash? You know, it's, it's like odd, right? So it's just like this, this rise and this rise and this rise. Um, but the very thing maybe at the center of it all is this fear, right? And this fear with anxiety being the, the last I checked, the number one diagnosis, um, you know, is it's just this, this global sense of fear and doom and dread, Um maybe we're adding to that right now in this conversation. Um, but, <laughs> but it's, 
I don't know. I think it's just, you know, and it's like we've got we've moved from one crisis to the next where this was always this was predicted in a lot of the circles that I have engaged in is that, that they would go from um, epidemic lockdowns to climate lockdowns. Right. That might be the next thing where we're where soon we'll be potentially doing lockdowns to change the environmental element where we'll have to shelter in place because we're going to try to just save resources. Right. Um, but yeah, again, going back to Frank and Sebastian Younger's work, which, which is so amazing, by the way, there was that book he wrote and the movie he wrote about the veterans and the, and the guys going to war and the sense of despair they had when they weren't in tribe and community and them wishing despite the danger to actually go back into battle. Um, so I, I'm so psyched you, you brought that up. So that's what I got right there. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's go to your specialty sky, uh, working with people's bodies and working with training. And what do you see in the human animal these days? What about their physicality and what's, what's there, what's missing and what do you try and do with that? Okay. Yeah. So on the, on the daily, I'm, I'm outside coaching humans and i'm helping them move better ideally or move differently um you know functional health coaching i guess we're always trying to come up with a with a term for what we do um we meet outside exclusively um regardless of the weather um and maybe it comes back to connection again Hmm. with body connection with body awareness and with developing skills in how we move, um, a skillful sense. Yesterday, for example, I was working with some dedicated uh, clients who work with me three days a week. And he's as, he's as old as our president, and she's a couple years younger. Um, and I've, I've actually started referring to people as you know, 78 years young instead of old, which is an interesting kind of flip. And we were just discussing the lifestyle element. And I said to them yesterday, because of some, some issues that had come up in their lifestyle, that the training that we're doing and the physical element is sometimes as much as, as maybe 10% of the bigger picture. If you don't sleep right, if your stress is a certain way, if you're um, <clears throat> you know, engaged in long sedentary hours of, of, you know, scrolling or, you know, watching something that's not teaching you anything, then it's going to greatly affect our training. So there's the movement element that we're doing out there, moving in 3d or 4d dynamic breathing, um, ground movements, rolling, crawling, throwing, carrying all these things. Um, but I really have an eye on how we exist in the world. So how do we exist in the world so that that'll inform how we move, right? So if people come, I think Thomas Hanna would refer to this as, as uh, would have referred to this as somatic retraction, right? If we're in a retractive state, then that's literally, we could say, you know, that would be considered, um, you know, extension versus or compression right? In our bodies. Yeah, and yeah. it's also the, yeah, the idea of somatic retraction would also be 
would be potentially fearful or in a state of um, uh, anxiety, again, coming back to fear. So trying to have people live in a, in a sense of expansion as much as possible in their lives and teaching them to not just do the stuff with me one to three days a week. It's the stuff that they do when they're not with me that's really the importance. So there's an educational component. So we're out there and yeah, we're doing, we're doing the work, but then I have them, okay, show me what we're doing and have them teach and have them display what they've been learning. And it's pretty, pretty wonderful. So the bubble that I live in with my clientele is, is probably different than the state of the, the whole thing. Um, I've recently started substitute teaching at a, at a local private school and of course I bring movement into the mix and passing a eight pound medicine ball around to 14 to 18 year old kids the other day was a little scary. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was surprising how much that, that, that eight pound ball is eight pounds, actually eight pound ball acted upon their bodies. Right. And they said, Oh man, there's like falling over with it and everything. That was before I brought the 20 pound ball out. Um, I'm pretty concerned about the state of health right now and physicality. But again, I, I refer to what I'm working with in my clientele is a little bit of a bubble. They're out there with me and they're, they're doing the work and they're doing it at home. Um, but what I'm seeing outside of that circle is, is uh, let's just say we have a lot of work to do guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Sky he has a, he has a question for you. What I'm interested in is, what do you think are the initial motivators? Why do people actually come to you in the first place? That's my first question. My second question leading off of that was, how does that change over time? What do you notice that changes? I was thinking about our discussion on the, on the drive-in a little bit this morning. And um, I kind of, and I lovingly say this, but I, I have a tendency to have a, um, a group of um what do, you, what do you want to say? Like a, an odd group, a, a cast of characters that are, that are uh, uh, outcasts would be a, would be a, a odd term, but these are not the normal folks that just want to go get a workout. Um, my clientele has always been very divergent from, you know, each other. I'll work with a 14 year old kid. And then my next clientele, my next client would be, you know, 55 with a whole different, you know, reason why they started with me um i think people want something different when they come to me i think they're they're not looking for the the gym experience um they've probably already been introduced to their body another way um generally and i'm also known to work with people that have had their body injury right a bunch so um aka you know had some injuries right um, and then leading to the second part of that was, how does that how change? They... Yeah. How's it change? I mean, so let's say initially somebody comes in, you know, they're there because they want something different. They don't want to go to the kind of standard gym. Maybe they're working through some injuries. Do you see anything change over time as far as the reasons for them being there? And that now might be, for example, more kind of taking those lessons into, into their lives, right. In a positive way beyond just movement as in how they show up in the world, right. As an example. Absolutely. 
if they don't, then I create, create it for them. Um, and I mean that in the sense of, I don't really believe in, in, in movement as the end at all. Um, currently right now there's four surfboards in my van, all packed up, ready to go, um, you know, out to the coast for the weekend. And last night I played music, um, you know, I'm a drummer and I, I really believe in people having something to do with their movement skills. Right. So a big part of what I do is I guess the, the inspirational aspect, right. Trying to get people inspired so they can take some of their skills that they've found with their body and their mind and their breathing and try something new. So you know, and again, if they don't know what that is, then I'll still, I, I bring in rhythm to the mix. We'll be drumming sometimes. We'll work on our paradiddles or our, rud- our rudiments. Um, I, I often see, if, if I don't see people come to me and then that's the end, right? And again, if it is, then I strongly push them or help guide them into other um, activities. So, it always changes and it's been really wonderful to see people just taking on new experiences, whether we're bringing them to obstacle races back in the day and doing the Spartan races as a team or people starting mountain biking and then doing mountain bike coaching with me or um, trying music, trying new things to challenge themselves, you know, that kind of do something that scares you every day you know mm-hmm. um, I love yeah I love that I love that just 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 quickly thank then you can jump in is the reason I asked that question is because I'm you know I'm pretty much known in the martial arts world that's what I'm known for and you know I get I've been very lucky over the last couple of decades I've traveled all over the world I've taught everywhere um, I have programs I have people that I teach and I would say that the, again the people that come to me would be very similar to the people that come to you right that's kind of how I I feel um, but one of the things that I've noticed is that anytime I suggest just publicly that martial arts can be more than just quote unquote about learning how to fight, that actually what it should ultimately be about is the ability to take on the martial arts of everyday life more skillfully. I immediately, I immediately get labeled as either some kind of quack self-help guru or tree hu- yeah there we go a snake oil artist or a you know a tree hugger or something like that there's this kind of resistance this backlash amongst the majority of people in the martial arts world anytime you suggest that in this day and age and i put that down largely to two things one is there's two main streams of martial arts these days. It tends to be the hyper-competitive approach or the reality-based self-defense. And I've kind of been born in the wrong era because if I was back in the 60s and I was talking about what I'm talking about now, everybody would be, yeah, I'm in, man. You know, I want to I want to know more about this. But I was thinking about that too, is that for, for the longest time, I thought the reason there was this resistance was because... Originally, the traditional martial artists often talked about what I'm talking about, but unfortunately, what they taught didn't match up to reality, right? So when it came to actually performing those skills, they couldn't actually do it in reality, right? And so that's the kind of proliferation of, say, uh, mixed martial arts as an example of why it's become so popular, finding the most functional way to, to fight, quote unquote, right? So there's almost like this kind of like this throw the baby out with the bathwater. But more and more, I'm starting to come to the realization that I don't think that that's actually the reason. I think the reason is, is because 
Society is the problem. We've been situated in such a way that we believe that the only way to have any experience is to compete, outdo everybody else. It's about collecting the accolades, you know, the, the quote unquote, the medals and cups and everything else. And that is the focus, right? And I think this is where this kind of reaction comes in is that, you know, I don't want to learn about how to take on the martial arts of everyday life more effectively. Just teach me how to beat this other guy, right? And what they don't realize is exactly they are exhibiting the very thing that's creating the problems in society in the first place. Nice, nice, yeah. (laughs) Well, I had, uh, I I was uh, curious, Sky, about your take on physical labor because that's been a big part of my life and my athletic development, I guess you'd say, and my interest in a functional approach. And it's really missing from uh, a lot of physical training programs. A lot of people say, well, physical labor is not, it's not even in the ballpark. It's, It's an outside thing. But what you've done, I think, is integrated into, into training. Absolutely. It's the, it's the cornerstone of my own development as an athlete. Um, and it, the lessons that I learned from my, my grandfathers, my uncles, my, my, my dads, I do have two. Um, well, I, yeah, one passed away and I've been re- reunited with, with my, my biological father recently, which has been wonderful. Um, I've learned so many lessons along the way from a small, I was so blessed to, to grow up in a, in a very physical household. Um, and, you know, did carpentry in, in high school and worked um, just as a kid, we had a small um, farm in New Hampshire and a, a firewood business and just always physical, always reno- renovating an old farmhouse and, you know, fields and gardens and did farmers markets and all that. I, I learned so much from the, from the, the strong men in my, in my life. My, my dad growing up uh, was a Vietnam veteran and a, a biker, like a, like a hardcore Harley biker. And his friends were all mostly in that demographic. And these men were like these, the, the kind of guys that would, would take a, um, sledgehammer and hold it out and i've seen you do this frank with different things where you you kiss the where you kiss it right you lower it down i believe i've seen you do it with a club or something right where you're trying to hold that hold that out and and tilt it to you and and just give it a little kiss and, and it, you know, there's a whole technique to that right so it's not just strength there's a leverage element um and then as as time went on working on various different um physical project warehousing. I was on this one job for a couple of years where you got paid to go as fast as you could physically and, and throw around meat boxes, 50 to 80 pound meat boxes, load them on pallets. And, you know, you're running from slot to slot to, to, to bay to bay, throwing meat boxes and you got paid to go as fast as you could. So it, I, I moved into the world of what I call um, being an industrial athlete right mm-hmm. um and as time went on i, I kind of became known in that world as someone who could work really hard really fast and took like an athlete approach and that led into projects down the road where people would hire me based on my physicality so whether it was clearing 
trees, um, you know, with a chainsaw in tip in, in challenging environments, um, that were hard to get to, um, you know, doing stone masonry, various levels of construction where there was elements of, of physicality in the sense of danger as well. Right. So there's like a dangerous element. Um, physical labor has ba- is, is the cornerstone of my, my whole practice. Um, it later led into things like the death race, which was, uh, I feel like it maybe has, has peaked a little bit since, but, uh, Joe DeSena's work and everything where there was an obstacle race that would, would be like a 24 hour later it became like a week long thing. It just got insane where there was elements of physical labor within the actual, um, race, uh, where you're chopping, you have to actually have to chop firewood and then carry it and, and carry buckets and all this stuff. So I started bringing it more and more into my sessions with clients, especially in, when I was in Vermont, um, out there in the woods at night, headlamp in the snow, five gallon buckets, carrying things through deep, deep snow. Um, and then adding team challenges to that. Um, I just, being able to work, it, it kind of cracks me up when I think of a CrossFitter doing these workouts and they're doing this wad, you know, and they're, they're working for 20 minutes, you know, and it's hard. There's no doubt, no, 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 nothing against anyone who CrossFits, but it try doing it for eight hours, right? There's a lot of like physical labor projects that I've been involved in that are literally, it feels like CrossFit for the entire time, like commercial trail building, for example, is just, it's another level of grueling that's, it's really hard to explain until you've done it commercially. Um, so it's everything. It's, it's the sound of, um, I think Matthew Crawford talks about this in shop class for Soulcraft, craft, uh, which is mandatory reading for anyone that, um, comes aboard and wants to apprentice with me these days. Um, it's the, it's the, your day starts with so much sensory information the, the, the sound of an engine, the sound of a motor, you go to fire that chainsaw up. If you're, if you're not paying attention on a auditory level, you might notice something and actually destroy your equipment and you're going to lose the day's work, um, money, time, the whole thing, or it's going to create danger for you. So it could lead to injury or worse. Um, there's the feel there's maybe there's cold weather. Maybe there's a dexterity that's required where you can't just bam and jam it, you know? So obviously there's different levels of physical labor where, you know, there's some, some stuff you're just digging holes all day. You can kind of wham and jam it, but you don't want to break your shovel. Right. So every, everything you do in the world of physical labor, there's an element of, of, of listening and then feeling and then observing, right. Seeing things before they happen. It's like being able to notice the wind, being able to be in an environment we have like a big storm coming right now and it's you know if you're working outside today um you know and you're having to deal with ladders or you're having to deal with anything like that you better pay attention right there's stuff that's changing so you have to you have to feel you have to see you have to hear well what's what happens when you go to a move nat course right they teach you how to do all these things right basically um so yeah physical labor is the cornerstone um, it's definitely even more so than dabbling in martial arts for me. I'm a, a dabbler at best, not like you guys are legitimate martial artists. Um, 
So that no, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's good yeah. though, Sky. Because I was just thinking. I mean, obviously, you know, my questions come from. I try to place myself in a place of a somebody listening to this that may not be part of this world that we're talking about, but is looking to get into this to this world or wanting to experience some of it, right? So I'm always looking for. Okay, I get it. I understand what you're saying. But I guess for somebody else's, okay, but what, what am I, what's the gain there? Like, what is the point of doing all those things? I guess the first thing that comes to mind for me is there's an element here of the art of self-reliance on one respect, right? The ability to be self-reliant so that you can achieve certain difficult outcomes and do it with precision, with poise, you know, and, and, and show up in a way that actually is meaningful. And I guess that's really what it comes down to is that, because most people don't do any kind of physical labor, we can also make the argument that they are so disconnected from themselves that they don't actually know themselves anymore. And, and kind of what I get from what you are describing is that that's one way to fully reconnect with yourself, but not just with yourself, with all your senses, as you said, but also be in tune with the environment, which again is a lost art. It's something that most most people, especially living in a city, are, are not going to know. And I guess, you know, in that sense is that any kind of physical labor, it doesn't have to be what you described to the extreme, but any of the practices that we could think of that could be potentially available to somebody and say, for example, an urban environment can lend to what I've just said. I mean, do you guys agree with that? Does that make sense? Oh, uh, totally. Totally. And throughout this conversation, I'm, I'm always curious about um, physical education classes in school and wondering, you know, if I had the leverage, how would I teach those or what kind of curriculum would be involved? Because right now it's, it's pretty weak and it's mostly about sports, which are movement specialties. And wouldn't it be nice if we taught some functional movement and how to climb a ladder, how to swing an ax, how to swing a sledgehammer, how to carry things. And, and we don't teach any of that. It's, it's this horrible oversight where we could be preparing children to live in a physical world and we don't do it so if you guys were pe teachers what would you teach i don't know sky probably can answer that better than i can <laughs> yeah okay um yeah absolutely i think coming circling back a little bit to joe DeSena, um who's written some books he's the spartan race guy so he started the spartan race the death race and lots of offshoots from there. But thinking about back to what Joe was doing um, is he would have athletes show up at the, at the meeting point in Vermont, knowing that his neighbor down the road had recently had a tree fall on their house due to a storm. And instead of just being inside and doing a bunch of burpees, he'd do the burpees there first and go, okay, now let's go do the session. And then they'd haul their butts over to the neighbor's house and get the tree off of the house for the neighbor. You know, they're maybe they're older or they just wanted to show some goodwill. Um, granted, Joe's a, you know, wall street guy from New York who moved to Vermont. Maybe he's trying to also create goodwill and, and uh, you know, be, be part of that community. But the element of, of helping, is, is a huge thing. The element of doing something together, which I, which I didn't really touch on the physical labor element is there. That's another part of it. Um, so but that's also, but that's also a really good thing though, Scott, not to interrupt, but as coming yeah. back to what you said, right in the beginning, you were talking about a feeling of disconnection. 
And maybe one way to bridge that disconnection is to start instilling an ethos of helping others. Because that's one way to feel connected, right? It's one way to feel valued. It's it, it Obviously, we know it gives you a good feeling as well, but you're doing something for somebody else. And I think that is a powerful way to reconnect. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I definitely would see an element of that within the sessions. Um, I The school I started at last week, I just did some basic stuff outside with them and just got them in a circle and we we're all passing the ball and we're all, you know, it, it very, very much exuberant animal vibes with it. You know, we were throwing stuff at each other and, and then realizing within the group, there was some students in that group that have their, everyone's got their challenges, whatever it is. <clears throat> and then I saw this really shared kind of element of, you could see when a certain student got the ball how much it acted upon them. So then instead of just hucking it at them, the students were naturally re remembering what happened and then throwing it to that person who might've been struggling with a weight greater than the other one in a different way. Right. So there was this shared element of like, and there was that, that come back to that physical labor element of like, Oh wait, I don't just huck, wham and jam it. I have to actually deliver it in a certain way. Um, so yeah, just trying to create, if you were talking about physical education curriculum, there just has to be an element of, of helping each other as well. So if we're playing dodgeball, you know, which is, is pretty sweet. Can there be an element within that where it's not just rewarding the top performer, right? The people with the most athletic prowess, but it's right. looking at the whole collective and, how are we only, we're only as fast as our slowest person or something like that. Yeah, right? I like that. That's really cool because the way that I describe that within my, my work is, and what I've tried to, you know, really bring across to the people that teach my programs is that we always want to approach, um, you know, the game as a challenge, but it's a challenge play game, meaning that I cannot achieve any success without having somebody opposite me, right? So if you think about something like jujitsu, right? So, you know, I teach jujitsu. I have people who teach jujitsu for me. Well, there's no jujitsu without other players. And if my goal is just to come in and just basically smash the playing field and just basically eliminate everybody, okay, fine. But at the end of the day, you learn nothing from that and you haven't given anything back and you haven't helped anybody. And so the realization that actually this person, you need this person in order for your game to improve. And so it has to be a give and take. And so there's going to come a time when you switch up partners that you will have somebody that can give you a run for your money. But then there's going to be another time when there isn't that case and you need to learn to you know, modulate your, 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 your physicality in re relation to the person that you're working with. And that becomes not something that you're now sacrificing, but actually what you're really doing is you're giving that other person the opportunity to grow. And when you do that, that's obviously good for your personal growth as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I love that. And another, another thought of that is just, it's just circling back to uh, not to kiss any butts here, Frank, but, you know, <laughs> coming back to also exuberant animal. Sure. Right. When I, yeah. when I think of physical education, the model that, that comes comes to me is is the work that I've been blessed to share uh, due to Frank and and his work at Exuberant Animal. Um, I've used the Exuberant Animal model in several settings, including 
several hundred kids at a time at a special event where it's several hundred, like at one time, wow. <laughs> um, wow. all, all the way to a group of hospital administrators, um, a bunch of folks at a, at a golf club that we were there for a physical uh, therapy clinic. They were bored out of their skulls. We got them doing exuberant animal and they, the whole place just lit up yeah. <laughs> um, working with troubled youth. You know, the whole, it doesn't matter the audience, the results are always the same. They'll come in with a certain look and a feel and a vibe. And maybe it's a little, uh, by the end, it's a hundred percent guaranteed to have smiles and laughter, just like we were in, with these kids last week. They started out and they did not want to do it. They did not have any interest in it. And I just stuck with it. And we just did some of the basic stuff that hmm. basically I learned via Frank um, back in 2009 initially. Um, so, yeah, Frank, what do you think about that as far as Zerman Animal as physical education? Yeah, and I think it's a great idea, obviously, but for people who are unfamiliar, the way we set it up is really important. So at the beginning of a workshop, I say we're going to we're going to follow dojo rules here. And one of the dojo rules, of course, is no phones, no electronic devices, no distractions. But one of the dojo rules is that everybody trains with everybody else. And that means, you know, maybe you come with a friend, but you're not going to train with your friend the whole time. You're going to you make it a point to try and train with everybody in the class or everybody mm -hmm. in the workshop and don't play favorites. And that is a, uh, it's a socially bonding effect, but it's also a great training effect because you, you're training with a bunch of different people who behave in really different ways. And that makes you a better athlete and a you know potentially better person even. So uh, I love setting it up that way. Mm, yeah. I mean, the way that I kind of visualize it for myself is that when somebody comes to me, I, I suppose I'm talking purely more martial arts here, but I think it applies across the board. And somebody says, well, what is the ultimate goal that you want to see me achieve? And my ultimate goal is I want to see them achieve adaptability. I want them to be able to take yeah. the skills that yeah. I teach them and adapt it to multiple varied environments, no matter where they find themselves. Right. And so mm -hmm. the question then kind of starts, you know, we start talking about, well, what do we how do we achieve adaptability, right? Well, you know, the, the basic element is that in order for adaptability to come to fruition, you have to be innovative, meaning that you have to come up with unique solutions to a problem, right? Because that in of itself then leads to adaptability. So the next question is, okay, well, how do I come up with innovative solutions? Well, you have to be creative, right? And so the question then is, how do I develop that creativity? And this is where most people don't expect the answer. I said, well, you know, in order to be creative, you have to take risk. Yeah. Because unless yeah. you take risk, unless yeah. you're willing to mess up, unless you're willing to make a mistake, there will be no creativity, there will be no innovation, and there will no be adaptability. However, when I say risk, I don't mean tear somebody's arm off. Right. Because the whole point is, is that I need to be able to take risk in the sense that I can continue to play the game. And if you, for example, like say in jujitsu, you just want to basically tap me out or in boxing, you just want to knock me out. That risk is too high to play the game. Then I'm never, you know, if all I'm going to do then is if, if Frank wants to knock me out, all I'm going to do is default to what I think is my best possible game, even though it might not be. And I will never explore any of the potentialities of the game. So I'll never be creative. I'll never be innovative. I'll never be adaptable. And so we have to be on this kind of same page where 
He lets me know that I've messed up, but not to the degree that I can't continue to play the game. And I guess that kind of speaks to that infinite game, right? That idea of like, you know, not you know, yes. play, playing on the outside, you know what I mean? Going beyond just what you think the rules are. And that's really where you develop that, that potentiality. That's where you build your adaptability. But it comes back to everything we've been saying, right? I mean, you have to work with everybody. And that's the other thing, right? It's like just recently I was in Norway and I, and I explained this to everybody. This is how we're going to do it. And if I see anybody else not playing how we've, we've decided we're going to play, I'm going to ask you to remove yourself from the floor. Because what I wanted to do was I wanted everybody on the floor, and there were about 60 people. I wanted them all to be able to roll with each other. And that included the women in the class who I know have been avoiding the guys because every time they go and roll against them, they just get teared up. And like, why, you know, the, the risk is too much, right? So they can't play. And so at the end, result of that was really good is that everybody on the floor rolled with everybody and there were no injuries and there were tons of smiles. And everybody got to be super adaptable. And if you ask them, they would say that one experience, they learned more about jujitsu than the two or three years running up to it where they never played the game that way. Yep, yep. You know, you also see this uh, with non-human animals Mm -hmm. and specifically dogs. Now, isn't it interesting that small dogs and big dogs can play with each other because they want, they value the play more than the victory. And so they keep playing. And you can take a a huge dog that will self-handicap and, in other words, turn down their powers so that they can play with the little dog. And that's exactly what we need to do with each other. Yeah. And I mean, you see that with children, right? I remember when like uh, my kids were much younger and their cousins were older than them. And, you know, there was a game that was underway. Uh, They would adjust the play so that the smallest of the, of the group could actually still play. You know what I mean? So kids naturally do that. And then what do we do? Invariably, we end up basically changing all of that and telling everybody, no, 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 it's not about that. It's about survival of the fittest. It's about competing. It's about outdoing the person next to you. Right. And that's kind of where everything shifts to. And then are we surprised again, coming back to what I said earlier, are we surprised that we have all of these problems in society? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody plays with everybody else. That's a great starting point for a workshop. And and that's what I try to do personally. Like if I'm leading a workshop, I make it a point. I look around the circle. I say, I'm going to try and play with every single person in this workshop if I possibly can. And it uh, it makes me a better athlete and a better coach too. Yeah, so, sure. So as we yeah. come to the end here, you know, because I want to be respectful of Sky's time, right? Just like kind of a final point, Sky. Like if you... Just thinking about just all the things we talked about, what would you want to kind of leave as your parting message, like to everybody listening to this? Something that that hopefully will, you know, inspire them and motivate them. No pressure, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, start now. Start now is my is my message. Um, it could be as simple as as this. Let's do this, guys. You, you mind bearing with me here a little bit? Sure. Okay, so let's just do some box breathing, all right? Just four rounds, mm-hmm. all right? I'll, I'll lead, okay? So what we're going to do, I'll explain it. We're going to just – I like to call it circle breathing, but whoever invented it, was it's box breathing initially. And it's um, a cycle of an inhale, a hold, an exhale, and a hold. And we'll do, the, we'll do it for five – four times, but we'll go for a five count. 
Mm-hmm. All right. And if you're listening to this at home, as long as you're not driving, even driving, this is, this is okay. Um, it's not the end of the world. Um, we start now. This, that's my lesson. All right. So you guys ready? Mm-hmm. All right. So let's inhale. Two, three, four, five. Hold. Two, three, four, five. Exhale. Two, three, four, five. Hold. Two, three, four, five. Inhale. Two, three, four, five. Hold. Two, three, four, five. Exhale. Two, three, four, five. Hold. Two, three, four, five. Inhale. Two, three, four, five. Hold. Two, three, four, five. Exhale. Two, three, four, five. Inhale. Two, three, four, five. Hold. Two, three, four, five. Exhale. Two, three, four, five. Hold. Two, three, four, five. And just breathe normally. Right. I kind of screwed up one of those breaths right there, but yeah, it's all right. um, you still, you, you know, still, you still got us to invoke our parasympathetic nervous system. So the calming yeah. side of our nervous system, and that's what it's all about. Right. Yeah. yeah and, and that's, and that's just my, you know, when you, when you ask that question, Rodney, I, I just, I, it's all I could think of is just start now. Right. Just, just, you know, feel the soma, feel the, feel your body start now smile. Right. <laughs> it all starts with just, just a connection, just a smile alone. Like Rodney, when I saw you, like you're on my screen right now. And I saw that reaction to that, it made me smile sure. more seeing you light up, lit me up. And I, with all this complexity and all of this, it, the, the only thing I could think of is just to start now to connect with our body, connect with our mind, connect with each other. Um, and, and it's just, that's our starting point. That's our baseline. That's all I could think of. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty simple guy. Some people disagree with that, but I'm pretty simple. And I think it just starts with starting, you know, that, and that's, that's what I have. What about you, Frank? <laughs> well, that reminds me, um, I read a poet named Gary Snyder, who uh, mm. he won a Pulitzer Prize. He was big back in the 70s and 80s, I guess. And his his thing was similar. He said, find your place on the planet, dig in, and take responsibility from there. Yeah. And it, it was the same idea. Start here, start now, find your place. Wherever you are with whatever you have, begin it. And yeah. it's going to be different for everybody, but start yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, Sky, I appreciate your time. That was awesome. And uh, hopefully we can do it again and we're going to let you go. And uh, yeah, man, just keep doing the work you're doing. Sounds amazing. Likewise. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely. And look forward to more in the future. Cool. Way to Cheers. Go, Cheers, man. <laughs> All right. Cheers. <laughs> Rock the day. Cheers. Cheers. Thank All you. Right. Bye. Hey. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, that was great, man. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know what I find fascinating? Like, you know, we've we've only done a few of this, but obviously we've talked a lot and about these things offline is that I find it fascinating that when we talk to all these different people, we all coming up with very similar conclusions, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because that kind of tells me that we're onto something and we're moving in the right direction. And I, I find it beautiful that each of us are doing what we can do 
kind of like what you did just said about Gary Snyder's poem, right? It's like, I'm mm-hmm. digging in where I am and I'm offering what I can, what I believe to be true, even though I know that it may not necessarily amount to some kind of popularity contest, right? right. <laughs> but, but, but at least I feel that I'm, I'm being alive and I'm being real and I'm showing up the way that I believe that I should be showing up. And in doing that, I'm hoping that I can make a difference in people's lives because I keep coming back to that, obviously, because, you know, most of my world is consumed with the world of martial arts. And, uh, you know, I could quite easily tomorrow morning change my entire marketing kind of perspective. I could kind of go into the status quo. I can push either the hyper competitiveness or especially reality-based self-defense because that's kind of my my knowledge base as far as, you know, dealing with interpersonal violence. And I can kind of drive in the direction everybody else is. And I could probably make a ton of money doing it, but I would be so unhappy for doing that. I wouldn't be able to, you know, see it through because I don't believe in it. And at the end of the day, I would not only be doing myself a disservice, but I would not be offering other people a different opportunity, a different way to do things. And that's the thing, right? I mean, I think too easily we get stuck into the status quo because that seems the way to achieve certain markers of success that the machine says we should need to do. But in doing that, we end up basically selling our souls, losing our human animalness, and we are no longer wild. And really all we are is just domesticated. Right. And you give up your creativity. Yeah, that too. That is, that's key. I mean, the art in martial arts implies going out, taking those risks and being creative, really, truly creative. And that's, uh, that's where the fun is. Yeah. And I mean, that's always what I've appreciated, you know, about your work, Frank, is that, you know, when, when, you know, when, I don't know, it's been a long time, right? Like, when did you come to South Africa? That was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. 15 years ago, maybe more. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe longer than that. Yeah, yeah. That's a long time ago. But I mean, even then you were talking about the things we're talking about now. Um, I think I'm kind of like a late bloomer. I'm coming to this. I mean, I kind of was there, but I think more and more that's my, my entire embodiment is shifting in the direction we're talking about. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because I think your message, along with other people that I know, for example, I think of a a very good friend of mine, Dr. Christian De Quincey, who's written some fabulous books. Um, I wish that was mainstream because I think if it was, it would make such a huge difference. I think we would actually start to see some positive change. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, because it's seen on the fringes, it doesn't get through to the mainstream. And that's kind of sad, but hopefully through doing these things like the podcast and interviewing these different people, we can maybe shift the needle somewhat. But anyway, even if not, right, at least we can be secure in, in, under, in knowing that the people that come to us are the people that truly want to, to experience this and want to do the work, which is a good yeah. thing. Yeah, no, this, this is very exciting on a personal level. And who knows, you, you, you just never know who you're touching. And that's, that's exciting too. I mean, yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let me let you go until the next one. And then, uh, yeah, man, just uh, my advice to everybody is just keep wild and free as best as you can because it's a jungle out there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Dr. King here. Thank you for joining myself and Frank on an exploration in improving the health of the human animal. To find out more about our work, you can visit Frank at exuberantanimal.com. For coaching with me and to find out more about the Human Animal Project 
as well as our retreats, go to humananimal.info. Until the next time, be wild, be free.